0: Thanks, Wes. Well, as Jake said, this is a... I really think he does do this on purpose. I think he goes on vacation and whenever there's really tough passages that come up. But it is... I will say for the first service, it felt more like... uh, If I'm capable of teaching a theology class, it felt more like a theology class maybe than normal. So... um, But it is... It is a very important passage, and it's one as we preach through verse by verse, you don't skip anything, right? So if we were preaching topical, maybe we'd skip this one, but we just don't do that. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for me, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, I pray that this, as we study this passage today, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would speak through me, and that your message would be just clearly heard by everybody in this room. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. So I was reading a story the other day about a family who lived during the Great Depression. And the story, it was, it was told through the lens of this oldest daughter whose name was Audine. I know we don't name people that anymore. Um, But her name was Audine. Admittedly, I I didn't know a, a ton about the Depression before reading this story. Um, Jake corrected me between services and I said it was in the 20s Jake said it was in the 30s so apparently I know even less than I thought I knew about the depression although the stock market crash was in 1929 which I told him I do know I do know markets um, so you know but it was it was a fascinating story to read because it was it was looking at life through the lens of this this family this farming family it was in northern Illinois and it was just you know I mean they're already struggling to get by their their crops were soybeans And corn. And so they were already, you know, if you're a one-man operation, you're small, you're not this huge conglomerate of farms, you're just kind of one family. I mean, it's already hard enough to get by in the 20s and 30s. And then something happens economically, which is really out of your control, and, you know, pretty much just does you in. And it's not just you, but everybody around you. So the story, as I was reading it, was talking about, this girl was telling about the community, kind of what people did to, to band together, how they helped Ends meet, Um, and there was one extremely fascinating part of the story um, where the girl Audine she says, you know, there was this neighboring farm, and they were struggling just like everybody else, but there was something different about them. Like just their their attitude, the way they approached things seemed seemed a little different. And she said at one point their names were Carl and I wrote it down, Carl and Francis Lawrence. And she said, at one point, this neighboring farm, these neighbors reached out and came over and they invited her and her sister to church. And she goes, so for the first time in my life at 12, in the middle of the Great Depression, I went to church and I heard about Jesus. And she says, you know, that, that totally changed my life. Like it, it, you know, opened my eyes, I committed my life to him, and the story goes on, and she's talking through, you know, these different aspects, but essentially she said, I was looking at life... Through, through a different lens like there were so many different things about life now that were just different my outlook how I was viewing the surroundings around me how I was viewing the people around me how I would help them whether i wouldn't help them and you know she just it was just different she said she grew in her faith and eventually she got married to a young Christian man that she said before it wouldn't even have phased her she wouldn 't even have thought about that but she got married to a, a young Christian man and they studied the Bible together and they had two girls who eventually both placed their faith in Christ and eventually she was able to lead her mother to the Lord, and she said her father also, her father was 84 when she actually led her father to the Lord, it was one year before he died, she was able to lead her father to the Lord at 85, um, and she said, you know, it's just crazy to think of the trail, like the, you know, the trail of people that now know Christ because of two individuals, Carl and Francis, and here's the thing, they knew that their own story, and this may apply to some of you, I know it applies to me, their own story was in disarray. Great Depression, right? I mean, just life life turned on its end, but they knew there was something bigger happening. Like they knew there was a bigger story going on. And their circumstance, like life, life happens around your circumstances. Would you agree? I mean, life does not care about your circumstances. At times, life just keeps on going. And for them, they knew there was something bigger going on. And even in the midst of the Great Depression. They knew God was at work, and so you know, at a time when most of us would probably be, me included, licking our wounds or crying out to God, you know, why is this happening to me, or demanding that He improve my circumstances. Well, when is this going to get better? You know, they're looking around, and they invited this little farm girl to church and pointed her to Jesus. I have a picture of her with her siblings because I feel like pictures tell the story better. Um, she's the one in the on the far on the far right, the tallest one there. That's Audine, um, and I like I like this story for a couple reasons. One is because Audine is my grandmother, and I'm in. I, I literally, as I was reading this story, she wrote her memoirs. And I was reading through her memoirs. She's passed away about a year ago. But I'm reading through her memoirs, and I come across this little part of the story where she's telling this story about the depression and her family, and the fact that, you know, the neighbors, Carl and Francis Lawrence, invited her to church. Her family didn't go to church, and they invited her to church, and she went, and how it completely changed the trajectory of her life. Like, you know, and so as I'm reading this, I'm like thinking to myself, wow, that one family. You know, I can, you can can trade, I'm standing here today, not to say God couldn't work in other ways, but I am standing here today because of a farming couple in the middle of the Great Depression that looked outside of their circumstances and said, we're going to invite these little girls next door to church. I mean, obviously a lot of other things happened. The Lord is at work and she met my, I mean, obviously a lot of other dominoes had to fall. The Lord had to make these other things happen, but that's, that's pretty That's pretty astounding. And it just kind of blew my mind as I was thinking about that. And, you know, on this side of eternity, I'm never going to meet them. And they'll never know the impact they had on my entire family. And I I just thought it was really cool. The other reason I love that story, and more importantly, is because it reminds me of how faithful the Lord is. Right? It just reminds me of who he is and that he is always at work in the middle of all your circumstances. Sometimes you just gotta look up and i'm not i'm not saying that's easy Right, It's it's very easy to get muddled in your circumstances. I've been there trust me But sometimes you just gotta say okay, god, what are you doing? Where are you at work? Where can I be involved with what you're doing? Like I want to control things. I want to own things but You know, where are you working? There's this moment in the book of matthew right before jesus goes to the cross He's in Caesarea Philippi, I think, and kind of the furthest, it's the northernmost point that would be considered kind of the Israeli territory. And he's walking with his disciples. It was very Gentile territory, so I'm sure there's big temples and other things around the, you know the, the Romans have built. And so he looks at his disciples, and who knows what they were talking about, but he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And Matthew 16, 14, some say John the Baptist. I will build my church. It was 2,000 years ago. And the Lord's church continues to be built to this day. And it's unfathomable, the, the variety of ways, you know, if you think of your life and think of why you're sitting here right now today, for some of you, it might be pretty simple. For others of you, it's like, well, that happened and then that happened and God used them and God used them. And Wow. Like if you just sit in awe, just sit and think about what the Lord has done and the path that you are on, the path that you have walked and what is leading you here. I mean, it's it's crazy the variety of ways in which he accomplishes his purpose. If you go from, you know, the early church from Peter and the book of Acts to the, the way the early church was reaching people and spreading the gospel to Constantine, a Roman emperor who converted to Christ, and all of a sudden, Christianity became kind of a commonplace in the empire, to St. Augustine, to Martin Luther. I mean, his church was being built. Like, you can follow the line. And even today, he's using people just like you, just like me, just like Carl, just like Francis, just who are obedient. Okay, God, where am I? What are you doing and what can I be involved in? Like, like, Lord, show me where you are at work. And the phrase that Peter uses in that, in that verse, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Like that phrase, like we've heard the son of God, most of us, our whole lives, son of God, but it has, it has huge implications. And you can trace it all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter seven, which is where we are today. And like I said, it's a very deep, Passage we're going to be studying. But if you were to ask theologians and just say, you know, tell me the most important chapter in the entire Bible, this chapter would be in the top five odd, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're like, really? I've never even read 2 Samuel chapter 7. But it has huge implications for, for all of Scripture. All right, so before we dive in, as you may recall from the last couple weeks, um, as we're walking through First and Second Samuel, King Saul has died, David has assumed the throne, and one of the first things he did when he took over as king is he wanted to establish a capital city for the nation. Okay, so he goes into this place called Jerusalem. It, was, it had been run by the Jebusites for over 500 years. And David comes in and God allows him to push the Jebusites out. And they, became, they began inhabiting the city. The Israelites settled in Jerusalem. And one of the first things David did is he's like, I want to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. Right? This covenant. This Ark of the Covenant. I want to bring this Ark of the Covenant because that is the presence of God. In the Old Testament, that was that was the presence of God. Remember, that it was in the tabernacle. It was in the Holy of Holies. Like, that's where God dwelt among his people. So when David comes into Jerusalem, he's like, we've got to have the presence of God. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Or to Jerusalem. I guess it wouldn't be back because it never been there. But bring it to Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, there was a quite an interesting series of events that happened as the ark was making its way. Remember, somebody reached out, touched it, they were struck down. Very interesting passage. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it. But yeah, it was, it was very intriguing. All right, well, now we come to chapter 7. And most scholars believe, we don't we know what time frame this is in, but most scholars believe quite a few years have passed from chapter 6 to chapter 7. David's fought many battles. He finds himself in this rare moment of peace. You know, if you think of David's life, he was fighting battles, he was on the run, he was hiding in caves. I mean, besides when he was a shepherd boy, from the moment he killed Goliath, and maybe a few years after that, his life was on the move, might not have been fighting battles the whole time, but he was doing a lot of different things. He was like at, at, at war with the Philistines. I mean, just if you look at the number of battles that David was involved in. So in chapter seven, he finds himself in a kind of a rare period of peace. The Jewish historian Josephus said that he had accumulated a lot of wealth for himself. Whether it be gifts from other countries, whether it just be the fact that Israel, God was blessing Israel, he probably had, according to Josephus, I don't know how he got these numbers, but in today's dollars, over a billion dollars was inside Jerusalem. Now, it might have been in gold and crops and other livestock and things like that, but that's, that's kind of where Israel is. And they would probably get to their most you know, earthly successful, if you want to look at it like that, under Solomon. But this is kind of, you know, the, the momentum is building. So needless to say, there's been some luxuries that have come into Israel. David has built himself a palace. We read about that a couple chapters ago, Second Samuel chapter 5. It says, now Hiram king of Tyre sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. So this was not like, you know, the guys down the street that came and helped you build your little hut. I mean, this is a different king from a different nation sent envoys of cedar. And he sent his own carpenters and his own stonemasons. And so, you know, David's living in a pretty luxurious place. Um, and that really is important for the setting of chapter 7. Okay, so let's dive in. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king, talking about David lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So, you know, this is all speculation, but, you know, uh, we're, here's what we're, we're guessing happened. So David's sitting there, he's with Nathan, having a conversation with Nathan one night, sitting on one of his many porticos. He's looking out, who knows, you know, sharing coffee or something, tea, I don't know what they drank back then, but, you know, they're looking out over all of Israel, Jerusalem, looking at all the things that have been built, all the things that have happened They're in a moment, kind of a, a moment of peace, and he looks over and he sees the tabernacle, sitting over there. Tabernacle is quite old at this point. This is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. It was a tabernacle. Solomon would actually build the temple, David's son, but this is, I mean, this is the tabernacle. So he looks over and he sees the, the tabernacle and he looks at, looks at Nathan and he goes, you know, you know, I'm dwelling in this house of cedar while the Lord dwells in that tent you know, maybe, you know, starting to fall apart. I, mean, I don't know why, why that mattered. But he's like, look, I'm in this beautiful house of stone and cedar. Something needs to be done. The Lord needs a permanent house. Verse three, then Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So like any good pastor, when someone wants to donate or come up with a building campaign or build another building for your ministry, of course, you're going to say yes, Let's do it. So that's literally what happens. Nathan. I mean, neither one of them pray. Neither one of them seek the Lord. It's just like, David says, hey, we need a building. Let's build him a building. Another, you know, the Lord needs a building. Why don't we build him a permanent structure? Let's build him a temple. Nathan says, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. And, you know, if I'm David, you got to put yourself in David's shoes. You always got to put yourself in the, in the shoes of the character who is talking. So if I'm David, like, I'm excited about this, right? I've, I've been a conqueror. I've been a doer. I've done nothing but... I've been on the run. I've been doing things. I've been going. I'm probably not used to a life of just sitting still. Like, I, I want, to, I want to, to do things. And, and if I'm him, and we don't know this, I mean, he's probably pretty excited about this. Like, I want to build the Lord a temple. Why would I not do that? I've got all this wealth. You know, I want to build him something nice. It might even be my crowning achievement. Like, I want to show people what, what, who the Lord is. And here's the strange thing. If you walk through David's life... He seeks the Lord in just about everything he does. I mean, every turn, he's he's asking the Lord, should I do this? Should I do this? I mean, he had been promised the king, like he would be the king of Israel for 10 years, and he was on the run from Saul. Saul is killed, and if it were me, I would immediately go and say, I'm the new king. God already told me I was, I've been doing this for 10 years, I've been on the run, I've been in caves, like... All right, Saul's gone. Let's do it. And he gets word that Saul is dead. And the first thing David says is he asks the Lord. He inquired of the Lord, should I go up? Like, sh- like, I mean, every step David takes, he asks the Lord. But in this situation, he doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the Lord. Can I build you a temple? He just turns to Nathan and said, should I do this? And of course, Nathan... Said, yeah, you should do it. And here's the thing, uh, you know, it probably, I don't want to speculate as to his heart. I mean, it might show, you could say it might show a little arrogance, a little pride, like, you know, God and I are like this, I can just do this and God will appreciate it, especially given his history of continually seeking the Lord, like he just decided to move forward. And here, here's the thing, I think it's a really easy thing to do in our life. We feel restless. And you're like, what, what can I do for God, right? I mean, you feel like you're in a really good spot. Me and God are like this, we're walking together, I'm doing my quiet time all the time. What can I do for God? Like, where, where, what does God want me to do for him now? And I'm not saying that was David, but I'm just saying this, this, is, this is a trap. Obviously, he needs me to do something for him, right? Because God needs me, of course. So he, obviously, he needs me to do something for him. So what can I do? And your desire might be right? but I think the question is wrong. The question is, what is the Lord already doing, and what can I do to get involved with the work that he's already doing? Instead of sitting back and like, all right, Lord you know, I'm going to go do this for you, I'm going to go do this for you, I'm going to go do this for you, maybe you should ask, where is the Lord already work. I remember Henry Blackaby in his study, Desiring God, said they were trying to start a Bible study on a college campus, and they've been going at it for two years. They had all these people in this particular group, and they've been trying to start a study, start a study, start a study, and it just was not working. And finally, after like two years, they pulled everybody together, and they're like, okay, let's just pray about this. And so they prayed about it, and they decided, after a lot of prayer, well, maybe God just wants us to see who, like, where he already is working. So they told everybody in this little group that was trying to start it, they said, why don't you just go to your classes, go to your jobs, and just listen. And if you see people seeking, and you hear people asking questions about the Lord, say, hey, why don't we study the Word together? And they said within like two months, they had three Bible studies going. Because they're just like, like God, here's the thing, from the beginning of time, God has always been working. Always. He is building his church, and I think my tendency so often is to like come in and say, all right, God, what can I do for you? Instead of just praying, God, where do you want me to be? Where, where can I, like, you know, just instead of volunteering, I'm going to do this, God, what can I do? And it's just, you know, it's not, I don't think it's anything, I'm not saying this is what David was doing. But there's a big difference in the two, right? So Nathan leaves, he goes home for the night and the Lord speaks to him and gives him a message for King David, verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. So basically he's saying, I've not lived in a house in 450 years, that's about the time frame. I've been in this tabernacle for 450 years. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So that's the Lord's response. He's telling Nathan, who he wants to go tell David. And at first, I think the word's... Those words seem a little confusing. Like if I'm reading that, even if I'm Nathan, I'm like, I mean, what's wrong with building the Lord a temple? Right? Would you agree? What's wrong with that? But I think the key to understanding what's happening is in verse 5. All right? David says, he says, David, would you build me a house to dwell in? Like, are you the one to build me a house? Right? David, let's let's take a step back for a second. And I think the Lord is kind of, you know, I don't think he's being, like, harsh to David. I almost think it's in jest. Like, all right, David, let's let's step back and let's think about this. All right, L- look at Psalm 50. Like, I'm the God of the universe. I don't need anything from you. Psalm fifty twelve. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And again, I, I don't think the Lord's being harsh to him. I just think he's like, David, I know we've walked together a long time, but please don't forget who I am. Please don't forget, I created humanity. If I needed food or money or land or a house to dwell in, which I don't, but if I did, I wouldn't come to ask you. I would just make it happen. Because I'm God. And if I, here's the thing. If I do ask you for your treasure, or I do ask you for your time, it's because I want you to experience what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. I want you to come along with me, to see where I'm working, to see what I'm doing, to see how I'm working in people's lives. I want you to experience what it means for people to have a relationship with God. I want you to experience what life change looks like. I want you to, like that, if I need you, like just come alongside. Let's, let's do this together. Don't go doing your own thing. And think you're just going to go do something without consulting me first. All right? And here's the thing. To be fair, I, and I think we see this in Chronicles, which we're not going to go to today. I think David's request comes from a pure heart. Like I think David is like, Lord, look how much you have done for me. Like I just want to do something for you. But it's more the manner. Like, here's the thing. David's focus has been what he can do for God. But I think what God's about to show him is, look, look what I've already done for you. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, and look how, just get a little technical, look how the pronouns shift. Okay, David's focus is what he can do for God. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Now, put yourself in David's shoes. Like I'm trying to imagine what he's thinking as, as Nathan is relaying this message from the Lord. Like, I know in the eyes of the world, David, you're a big deal. But, but I took you from the pasture. Like, you were a nobody. Your family was, a, like, literally, David's family. If you read through 1 Samuel, they, they didn't have much. Like, I took you from the pasture. You were with the sheep. And for years, I poured into you. We had a relationship together, right? David's writing all these psalms. Most of them, I shouldn't say most. A lot of them were written while he was a shepherd. Before he went kind of to his current place in life. He said, and God's like, you were the youngest. You were the runt. You were just a kid. When When I came... And anointed you. When Samuel anointed you, you were just a kid. You were a runt. You were the youngest. And I brought you here. And remember all those years you were running from Saul? Remember all that? I protected you in those battles you were in. I fought those battles for you. And here's the thing because I am who I say I am, because I give when you don't deserve it, I know you want to build me a house to dwell in. And I appreciate the gesture. But I'm about to make you a house. Okay, and here's, here's where we get a little technical. Because for a 21st century you know, person, Floridian, who's reading this, you're reading that language, and it, just, it, just, it might seem a little odd. You're going to build me a house, I wanted to build you a house. Okay, I just built a house, it's got cedar and stone, do you not see it over here? Like, what, like how are you going to, I don't understand what's happening. But if you're a Jewish reader, and you're reading this as a Jewish reader, the language the Lord is using echoes language from a thousand years earlier, with a man named Abraham. Okay, so David would have got this, and David's about to go into flip mode. And he's like, okay, now I understand what's happening. He's saying things like, I took you. All right, now think about We're going to read it in a second, but think about the promises made to Abraham. I took you. I have been with you. I will cut off all your enemies. I will make your name great. These are the things that God is telling David. And the reason this is so important is because this is the Davidic covenant. All right, little technical Davidic covenant, all right? And this is, this is a covenant between God and his people. And this covenant, there's four of them in the Old Testament, and they form the foundation of our faith. All right, here's what I mean. Go all the way back to Genesis. All right, everybody take a deep breath. Go all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created, right? It's Genesis, it's a new beginning, God created. And one of the desires he has from the very beginning is a personal relationship with his creation, right? Walk with me, talk with me, obey me, trust me. And that original relationship was like, it was like a partnership. God creates this beautiful world. He puts humans, Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, multiply, cultivate, be fruitful. Like, like let's do, let's do work together in a sense. But as we know, Adam and Eve had other ideas, didn't they? They're like, I don't really want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. And they rebel against God. They want to do things on their own terms. And sin enters the world. Okay, I'm sure you've heard this all before. Sin enters the world. All right, that partnership is broken. And now all of humanity is separated from God. But, but here's the beauty and here's why this is relevant to Second Samuel chapter 7. From the moment sin enters the world, God has a plan to redeem mankind. From the moment sin enters the world, he makes a covenant. I don't know if you've heard that term before. He makes a covenant with a small group of people. And he says, I'm going to use this small group of people to restore my relationship with the rest of humanity. Okay? He actually tells them in Exodus 19, in the Mosaic Covenant, he says, you are a kingdom of priests. If you read Exodus 19, and a, what is a priest? A priest is like an intercessor between people and God. And he's like, Israel, you are a kingdom of priests. Your role is not just to be this group of people that ignores everybody else. Your technical role is to point all of humanity to the Creator. And so that, this covenant that was formed way back in the beginning of Genesis, that, that was the goal of that covenant. And we see it first take shape in Genesis 8 with Noah. And what, what's going to happen is we're going to get a little glimpse. Every time God has a new covenant, there's one with Noah, there's one with Abraham, there's one with Moses, and now there's one with David. And every time that happens, it's like the veil is lifted just a little. And they can see how God's plan to restore humanity is going to come together. Because when you first read Genesis 12 and you read about Abraham, you don't have all the information you have now with David. Like you're seeing a clearer picture now. So in Genesis 8, Noah comes off the boat, right? All of humanity has been crushed. It's Noah and his family. God makes like a covenant with Noah and his family. And he gives them these things and he puts a rainbow in the sky. Remember that? A rainbow in the sky. Then Genesis 11. you I mean, Genesis 11, humanity comes together and what do they want to do? They want to build a... It's Tower of Babel. Humanity says, we're going to build a tower all the way up to the sky. And here's what they say. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. This is humanity. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And God says... No, the plan of humanity is not for you to make a name of yourself. It's for me to make a name for myself. So that's Genesis 11. Genesis 12 is when we see that that next covenant, that Abrahamic covenant. So in the very next chapter, we're introduced to a man named Abram. Genesis 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see that? See this small group of people, and he says, all the earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to use you and your line to bless the entire world. Like, that is my plan of redemption. And then in Genesis 17, verse 5, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now that's really important for where we are in Second Samuel. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you, and, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then we see that covenant renewed, so that's through Abraham. We see it renewed through Abraham's son, Isaac. We see it renewed again through Isaac's son, Jacob. So you go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. He has 12 kids, the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's literally where the Israel comes from. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, all of a sudden, all of their descendants become the nation of Israel. So we're still kind of walking through this line. The crazy thing is if you step back and think about scripture, scripture is literally following this one group of people. All these other things are happening in the world. And when you read scripture, you're following Abraham and his descendants. Throughout all of the Old Testament, you're following the Israelites and God's chosen people and his ultimate plan to restore all of humanity. Okay, so from Abraham, we're about to come back up for air. Um, From Abraham to King David, there's 14 generations. So all this time, 14 generations, a thousand years. And sadly, for most of those thousand years, God's people don't want anything to do with them. He made a covenant with them. He said, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. I want, like I want you to walk. Like I want. I want that relationship to be. I want us to have this relationship. Trust me. Like like we're walking down this path. They're wandering in the desert. They're complaining about his provision. They're worshiping other gods. And here's the thing about God: the entire time that's happening, he remains faithful. The same is true in your life, right?" You have a relationship with Christ, and there will be times where you're like, "Eh, I think I want to take the reins back and walk this direction. Lord, I don't know if I trust you in this area. So give me the reins. I'm going to go do this for a while. And you're just kind of like, I don't know if I trust, I don't know if I have faith that you can work in this situation. And what's God doing? Trust me. I'm not going anywhere trust me. Walk with me. Pray to me. Let's have a relationship together. It's in the middle of the Great Depression, but I'm at work. And people are coming to know me, and I'm building my church. And it might be in the middle of your own depression. And God says, I know you can't see the right way up. I know you're coming up for air every now and then, but I want you to trust me. We've all been there. Just different stages. I mean, we've all been there. Now we get to King David, and the Lord says, "All right, David, you want to build me a house? Let let me let me do something for you." And for the first time in five hundred years, the Lord renewed his covenant. He just lets out a little more of the picture. Noah didn't see much as Abraham saw. Abraham didn't see as much as Moses saw. Moses got the law and these pieces are starting to come together. And now you get to David. And this is going to be the last covenant we have before the Messiah comes. So the veil is kind of being lifted a little more. And this is what God says. Verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you And here's the deal. This This is part of this Davidic covenant. And what often happens in prophecy is you're getting a glimpse of not only the immediate with Solomon, but you're also getting a glimpse of the future at the same time. Like we're hearing of Solomon. Okay, your son Solomon is going to actually build the temple. We're hearing stories of Solomon. And Solomon, like his father, will need to be disciplined he will stray. He'll have 700 wives. There'll be a lot of things that Solomon does that does not line up with the things that God calls him to. And he will be disciplined. But then we're also hearing of a throne in the future, which will be established forever. Someone who is greater than Solomon. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So imagine being David. You know all these covenants. You've heard of these covenants before. And you're realizing you just, like, the covenant has just been renewed through you. Like, you're hearing this for the first time. And David's just like, I mean, he is stunned. He's not moving. He's in awe. The only thing he can do, it says, is sit. I just wrote down, sit and reflect. So through the rest of this chapter, he's going to reflect on the past, the present. He's really just going to thank God. Like, God, I am in awe of what you've done. I'm in awe of what you're currently doing, and I'm in awe of what you just said you're going to do. He's talking about the past. He's talking about the present. He's talking about the future. All right, so verse 18. Then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord. Like, that's all he can do. He sits before the Lord. He says, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? That you have brought me thus far. Like, you know where I was. You know what I was doing. You know who I was. And I, I'm like I'm, my mind is blown that you are doing this through me. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. when When I read that, for you know your servant, I almost feel like David's like, you know my heart. You know I struggle. You know I wander. You know I do things I shouldn't do. And yet you are still faithful in spite of all of this. Like, for you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it my two favorite words in that little passage verse 18 when it says he just sat down and verse 21 the word know like because of your promise according to your own heart you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it like David just started thinking like in the beginning hey I need to do God a favor and by the end of the passage he's just sitting down pondering the majesty of God and we could all probably learn from that He's just sitting down being like, I, I, I don't even know what to do. Like salvation, here's the deal. Salvation isn't about us doing something for God. He's already done it. He did it on the cross. Salvation is about us knowing him and being amazed and grateful for what he's done. Like being in awe of the fact that the creator of the universe came down to earth, walked among his creation, healed people, like talked with people, had relationships with people, wept with people, and then hung on a cross, this perfect creator, hung on a cross for our sins in our place, rose again three days later, and now he's in heaven. And he gives us his spirit inside. Like, I think we hear it so much, maybe we become numb to it, but it's mind-blowing. Like, it literally is mind-blowing that the creator of the universe dwells inside his people. And there's, I mean, there's nothing we can, there's absolutely nothing we can do, okay? And, and, you know, in reality, there's nothing we can do for God, right? Not because he doesn't need us or want us to do things, but we're just, we're overwhelmed. When we do things, it's like we're just so overwhelmed with who he is and what he's done that it's just, you know, our actions, our gifts, our treasures, our time, it's just like an overflow of that appreciation. Like, I just, I'm in awe. I just want to know where you're working, what I can, how can I participate in what is happening how can I participate in this? All right, verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, to make making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. David, David's like, look, not only, are you, not only are you working in my life, but you've called an entire nation of Israel. You've redeemed this nation. You've chosen us to be your people. And the reason I, I love the way he says that is he doesn't know the whole story. He hasn't seen the whole picture. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. But the church, us, us sitting here today... ...are grafted in to those people. We are the redeemed. Like, we we fill that same... Like, we are part of that same group of people. And it's an amazing thing to think about. Alright, we're going to read the whole rest of the chapter. It's like four verses. It's going to sound like a lot, though. And now, O Lord God... Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And as I mentioned, you know, as you, as you listen to David, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't know what's coming, I don't know that he, I mean, he just, he can't fully understand that, you know, God is coming to humanity. He doesn't understand the Messiah, doesn't understand that Jesus is going to hang on the cross, but he has faith in the promises of God. And I think it's a good reminder for us as we walk through situations that we don't see, as we walk through situations where we don't know what's going to happen, we don't know what's around the corner, that we have faith in the promises of God. That we know he is who he says he is. We know he's at work. And here's the thing. This, this renewed covenant, this Davidic covenant that we just read, it would set the tone for a future king. That was the whole goal. It was a connection from the, the Noah covenant to the Abraham covenant to the Moses covenant to the David covenant. It was the last covenant. All of a sudden, the next is the Messiah. Like, this is, this is the progression. And because of what God just spoke to David, Israel would now look for kings. They never even had a king till Saul. David was their second king, but all of a sudden now they would look to kings. They're like, "All right, the Lord has promised a future king, like a king who would trust Him and worship Him and like walk with Him." And I don't—we don't know what that looks like, but we're anticipating this new king, this king that will deliver us from oppression. You know, maybe deliver us from sin. And that—and here's the thing: when you get to the end of Samuel, you can even flip there now. You get to the very end of Samuel, and you go to the next book. What's it called? Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings. Like the whole nation of Israel has shifted to this new focus. Like they're, they're now looking, and if you go through, you realize no one is going to measure up. Nobody in Kings is going to measure up. There are a few Kings that actually walk with God, and it says it. They walked with God, but by and large, you read, and you can go through there, especially in 2nd Kings, King after King after King, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so and so came in and reigned, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And literally, Israel is wondering, what's going to happen? Where is this king? Where is this, this fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? What, what is happening here? And if you go a thousand years after David, a thousand years after David, an angel appears to a woman named Mary. Who, by the way, is in the lineage of King David. And here's what the angel says to her Luke 1 Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And we often like stop right there. What a great verse! What a great Christmas verse! Like, you know, that's, and it is, but the rest of the verse is really important. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Like this, when, when they would have heard that, they would have been like, okay, this, okay. I, like Mary, I mean, and Mary was just probably in awe. What? What? <laughs> Like, you're saying, what? And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the rescuer, and he's the fulfiller of all the covenants. The New Testament is actually the new covenant. If you look up the word testament, it's often referred to as the new covenant. Like that, that, this is who Christ is and unlike Solomon Jesus would not need to be disciplined he would not need to be disciplined by the stripes of men instead as Isaiah says he would be bruised for our iniquity and by his stripes we would be healed like that, that is such a powerful by his wounds by his stripes we would be healed he would not just be David's son he would be God's son as you hear that term, the son of God, like you hear that terminology, the creator, and here's the mind-blowing part, the creator of the universe would become the house that he promised to build. If that makes any sense. The creator in, in, in Jesus, God would be the fulfillment of his own promise. By coming to earth. Paul tells the people at Athens in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so here's the thing. He died not only to, if you go back to those covenants, to restore our relationship with the creator from the garden. Not only did he die to restore that, but he, he died so we could have a relationship with him and his spirit could dwell in us we are the temple right we are the temple Paul tells the church at Corinth or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body do you believe that do you you believe the creator of the universe dwells inside of you like, that's, that's a pretty powerful thought. When I was a kid, my grandparents, my grandfather's name was Spud. Um, you already know my grandmother's name, Audine. So Spud and Audine, Spud's they just actually celebrated. My grandmother passed away in September of last year. But before she did, they celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary, which is pretty crazy. 70, um, 70th wedding anniversary. My grandfather still lives in Lakeland. Um, but they used to take me and my cousin to see the Cubs play. They were in northern Illinois, and they would take us to see the Cubs play every summer. And I don't know if you've ever been to Wrigley Field, but it's an old stadium. Probably one of the oldest, maybe Fenway's older, Um, but they're both really old. And, you know, back in the day, apparently they weren't too concerned with fan experience. Um, because every now and then, you 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 know, my cousin and I would go and we'd get to the game. We'd be all excited. We have all our gear, you know, our mitts, hoping to catch a foul ball. And you'd kind of walk in. You wouldn't really be paying attention. You'd just kind of be getting to your seat, walking down the row, and you'd go to sit down. And they would have these obnoxious poles. <laughs> like, they really just don't. I don't know why, but there's probably, I don't know. 50 seats in the stadium where literally you sit down and you feel... I mean, think about it. Everybody behind this person is somewhat obstructed too. This is probably the worst you could be is right in front of the pole. But, you know, I mean, it's just like... It's, it's not a good experience. You sit down, huge pole in your way and here's the deal. You would be in your seat and I would literally, my cousin and I would realize it and well, right, well let's switch halfway through the game and you know that kind of stuff. But you would literally sometimes have to reach over and say, hey, what, what, what just happened? Like everybody's cheering or everybody's mad and I can't even tell what's happening. Um, and here's my thing. My fear for some of us is that we're not a participant in what the Lord's doing. Like not only do we not want to be and not only can we not see the field of play but he is inviting us. He's inviting us into the work he is doing. He's inviting us to play ball. And we just, we're not sure we want to do it. There's an obstruction in our way. And for some of you, that obstruction is the fact that you've never got a relationship with Jesus. Ever. Like you've kind of heard about him and you've heard of things and maybe you grew up going to church or, you know, you just heard of him, but you have never placed your faith in him. You have never said, I, I want to do that. Like, I, I realize I'm a sinner. Like, and I realize that, okay, Jesus died on the cross. I get that now. The covenant thing, Jesus coming to earth, he fulfilled it. He hung on a cross. He was raised again three days later. He's in heaven. Wow, that was God. Like, I, I, I realize that he died on the cross for my sins. And I want to commit my life to him. You can do that today. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Okay, maybe for some of you, you've done that. You've committed your life to Jesus. But there's some other obstruction in your way. Maybe it's life. Maybe it's stress. Maybe you're in the middle of the Great Depression and that's all you can focus on. Like life, circumstances garbage curveballs life has happened and it is so overly consuming and we've all been there that you just can't see through the clouds you can't get around that obstruction and you can't open your eyes and say i realize i'm in the middle of great depression but there are two little girls live next door to me and maybe if they had a relationship with jesus many people's lives would be changed future generations of people may be changed by the fact that you are participating in the work of the Lord I, I want to be I don't want to go out and do things because I feel like, like he needs me or because you know, I'm obligated to do them I want to be a trophy everywhere I go so people look at me and they see Christ like that man when, when I see that person I can't help but see Jesus All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7. Lord, they're hard to unpack. They're hard to understand, Lord, but we know that that you are who you say you are. Lord, we are so thankful for the Davidic covenant. Some of us came in here today and didn't know anything about it. But we're thankful for that covenant. We're thankful for the covenant with Noah and with Moses and with Abraham and with David. We're just grateful for the fact that you came down from heaven. You walked among us and you hung on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.